0: Hey guys, it's Abel here with the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast, and in this episode I have on Mr. and soon-to-be-doctor Eric Helms, and this is actually a big moment because Eric is the first guest who by now has appeared three times on the podcast, so a big round of applause for him. So with that, Eric is here to chime in on some of the topics that I have discussed quite a bit on my channel as of lately. Which is intuitive eating, ad libitum dieting, and how it compares to macro tracking, and also some of our favorite topics in the world, like body fat percentages and what kind of numbers are advantageous for natural bodybuilders to maintain year round. So, if you are curious about how an off season bodybuilder can use intuitive eating to keep making gains and improve their body composition and how Eric implements it with himself or his clients and how you can modify your behavior to slow down weight gain or to induce weight gain when necessary uh, without tracking your macros at all then you will like this episode. And since I am super grateful for Eric for joining me while being in the midst of submitting his PhD and going under surgery for his hips, I believe, I'll pay three special sound clips that all include the phrase thank you or just echo the message of gratefulness. So here we go. Track number one. Track number two. And with that, track number three.
1: Same, I'm glad you came, came, came.
0: Okay, so with that, I really am super grateful for Eric for joining me here. It's always a pleasure to talk to this man. And without further ado, let's get into the interview. I'm very excited to to pick your brain on a couple of topics that uh, I talked a little bit about with a couple of guests recently. But um, I I've heard you approaching it from an angle in some places that I haven't quite heard from other people. So it will be cool to uh, talk about this with you. So the my the first thing I want to touch on with you is um, you know. I've been listening to a couple of podcasts with you and some interviews that you've done with other people, and I've repeatedly heard you emphasizing the importance of, you know, monitoring people before you work with them, whether they have any history with eating disorders or just issues with food and and just not a very healthy eating behavior. And I guess the question that kept just kind of popping up in my head is why is eating disorder or just disordered behaviors around eating, or just not a healthy relationship with food, such an issue in the fitness community in the first place. Do you think it is um, the fitness industry and kind of the body image issues that develop over time or the fitness goals that people have and the neurotic focus on them is what's driving these issues? Or do you think that people who are predisposed to having an eating disorder or drawn towards fitness, uh, rather, which which one do you think is the case? Or what do you think about this?
1: I think it's both. Um, I'm not going to pretend to be a <clears throat> an eating disorder specialist or a sociologist. But um, I think it also depends on what part of fitness you're focused on. Um, because there's it's, it's a broad world out there. I mean, there's a huge like yoga community. And I would imagine they probably have a lower incidence of, um, you know, eating disorder or disordered eating than, than we in the kind of you know, supplement-driven fitness industry of of the bodybuilding world with uh, you know the fitness expos where you know Instagram fitspiration people are flocked to and, and walk around without shirts on. So I think the 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 portion of the fitness industry that's focused on aesthetics, I think certainly that that makes sense that that would um, both draw and create uh, a lot of well draw a lot of people who have struggled with that previously. Uh, And I think it would also – it creates that as kind of your acceptance into the tribe and and the way you have, uh, you know, social acceptability. So, I think that drives people to diet and, you know, dieting in and of itself increases the risk of running into disordered eating. So, not that there's never a time and a place to diet. So, I think it's a combination of
0: both. Yeah. And – and speaking of that, um, one thing, and I, I appreciate you acknowledging like that you're not an eating disorder specialist, and that's why I'm especially curious on your take on this as a bodybuilding coach. Is that I picked up a couple of books recently that were talking about um, intuitive eating, and they were talking about uh, eating disorders. And what occurred to me is that there were always a couple of good nuggets in these books, and a couple of couple of good takeaways. But the reoccurring theme in all of them was that, well, if you want to overcome these issues, then the first thing you have to do is stop dieting. And not only do you have to stop dieting, but you have to get out of this mindset of just basically wanting to lose weight in the first place or just trying to focus on body image and, and all of these things. And you, as someone who is working with, you know, these aesthetics people many times, uh, what what do you think about this whole thing?
1: Well, it's... it's um... For sure. I mean, if, 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 when I'm dealing with a someone in the midst of contest prep and they're struggling and, uh, they're, they're starting to develop unhe- unhealthy behaviors, then that's often when I will have a discussion with them about potentially bringing in a, a specialist, uh, alongside, uh, to, to work alongside me. Um, and that's never an easy conversation to have, but I don't think it's a complete surprise to our clients at 3DMJ because they know we look more holistically in terms of um, we care about the long term career of an athlete. Uh, we care about their ability to be happy and, and that the sport is actually enhancing their lives. And if those things aren't going to happen, if we think they're going to burn themselves out or, or make their life worse, uh, you know, from from competition, then then we're going to start putting the brakes on as coaches and uh, and trying to intervene. So you know that that that's that's one thing. Um, on the other hand. Um, you know, there's a few ways to look at people who have a background with disordered eating who come into the sport. Um, you could look at that as, oh, it's just another outlet for them to not get, get healthier. Uh, or you can look at that as a step in the right direction. I mean, there's a big difference between an anorexic person and someone who's a competitive physique athlete. Now they have structure, they have goals. There's periods where if they're, they're doing it correctly, they should be in, in a caloric surplus. Um, and again, not not that I'm a specialist, but I know a big cornerstone of most eating disorders is gaining a sense of control, um, and that is hugely common among physique competitors as well. They really enjoy controlling their nutrition, controlling their training, dotting their I's, crossing their t's, tracking variables. Uh, on the whole, of course, there's always exceptions. So I think it is sometimes um, a natural progression to go from, you know, I used to have a, a clinical eating disorder to. I've got that managed, um, but, you know, I'm still actually just very interested in fitness and nutrition, Um, and I I think bodybuilding would be a good outlet for that. And I think that doesn't have to necessarily be a bad thing. I think that can go poorly or that can go well, um, depending on uh, how honest they are with themselves, if they stay with – I think it's probably a smart idea to, to have some kind of clinical supervision for someone who has an eating disorder from the past when they compete. Of course, you know, your mileage may vary. And You know, if it was 15 years ago when you were a teenager and now you're in your 30s, maybe not. But um, I just think it's important to stay aware and honest and uh, and understand that, you know, contest prep and, and what I would classify as basically semi-starvation can induce disordered eating in people who have no background in it. So imagine what it's like to have a background uh, with eating disorders and then to go through that process. You're... you're it would just be smart to make sure you cover all your bases and are extra cautious.
0: Yeah. And, and so speaking of, um, you know, semi-starvation and contest preps, um, you know, I, I've heard you mention a couple of times that, uh, with the, when you've had the traditional reverse dieting model, which I hope most of my audience know what I'm talking about here, that you had like a, like a 10% success rate or something. And when you switch to the, the more assertive recovery diet model, then it jumped up to like fifty fifty percent. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, if I had to ballpark it, that would, that would pr- probably be similar numbers, and and that's carried on as you know three D muscle journey as a whole. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting because um, from what I understand, some of the, the 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 treatment methods when you're dealing with someone who has an eating disorder, especially binge eating, is that you create more structure. Uh, and that you have ways for them to kind of short circuit uh, that 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 binge eating behavior. Um, so yeah, you need to have some structure, but at the same time, um, this isn't just classical binge eating out of nowhere that comes post competition. It's very physiologically driven. Um, and if you in that state, if you give someone an unrealistic goal of right, we're going to barely increase your calories at all uh, post competition, and you don't have that motivating factor of getting on stage, yeah, it just seems to go poorly every single time. And most people end up in this yo-yo fashion where they, they feel like they're, they're screwing up on the reverse diet and beating themselves up because they just got themselves in a shredded condition and they can't understand why they don't have the same kind of drive anymore. And and they'll have these, you know, days of overeating and then days of of calorie restriction. And and it becomes this semi kind of exercise induced bulimia almost, uh, if it's not watched carefully, um, So yeah, we've had a much more success with instead of keeping someone in a deficit and then a ever decreasing deficit and then a very tiny surplus over months and months and months and months and months, with trying to get them to a reasonable body fat within, say, a month, a month and a half, you know. Within six weeks you're you're five to ten percent over stage weight. You're in a, a controlled surplus, you know. So it has the elements of the structure, but it also it does not keep you dieting. And I think that's at least is, is from our experience and what makes sense physiologically and our understanding of psychology, even though we aren't clinicians, that seems to align best with with uh, the reality of of human nature and, and biology post-competition.
0: Yeah, and um, do you think that, um, I mean, because 50%, that's, that's much, much better than 10%. But, I mean, obviously, you know, I guess if it was like up to you to decide what the percentage is, it would be 100%. But I guess what I'm thinking about is like, do you think that it's even theoretically or technically possible to reach higher than a certain uh, percentage of success rate? Or do you think that like simply getting down to that low in body fat percentage will just inevitably trigger some physiological changes and thereby psychological changes that will just inevitably lead certain percentage of the population to develop just not healthy behaviors around food and just some, some behaviors that will be problematic, even potentially long-term?
1: Uh, it depends. I mean, I think a good way to look at it is that when, when I say 50% of our clients are successful with you know, a recovery diet, um, what is the standard for success, right? And then second, does that mean that the next season, those same people were not successful that time aren't successful the next time i typically not people do much better with with subsequent uh com- competition seasons and bodybuilding and they get better and better at transitioning back to um you know nor- nor- normalcy really and i would say if the standard is simply not being depressed and um and you know still having some understandable post post prep blues but not being uh, disturbed and emotionally stressed from not being able to, to have some kind of modicum of control over your eating um, and then simply not overshooting where you started and, and having to start your, your off season in a position where you have to diet just to get to a normal off season body fat. If that's the standard for success, then I would say most people within one to three seasons figure it out. And uh, so it depends on how you look at it. If you were just to do a cross section of everybody, sure, it might only be 50%, but um if it's something that is looked at as a learning process, that's pretty good. I would say if we were to break that down into second season, third season, fourth season, that percentage would keep climbing. Um, because you're right, it's very difficult. You're going to be really, really hungry. And even if I told you to put you know, a 600-calorie surplus you know, after having the weekend to eat whatever you wanted on Monday, um, it's, it's, it's common. You know, like I said, like 50% of people that some point during that week that might end up into being a 1500 calorie surplus because they just have one of those days, you know, Um, and that can be stressful because they're like, oh, man, I'm 900 calories over what I was supposed to eat. And, you know, as coaches, we just go, don't worry about it. Just get back on the 600 calorie surplus tomorrow. And if we get there a little earlier, no big deal. Um, But uh, but yeah, so I mean, it's it's it it all depends on, I guess, what you think the target is or the aim is. And we don't I think the big thing is you need to shift your mindset away from uh, if I mess up, quote unquote, my a day of my recovery diet or reverse diet, that that's bad. And more so, man, if I was already in a surplus and I, I binged, maybe I needed that, you know, so long as this isn't a, a, a cyclical or not cyclical, but a um, an often occurring thing that that is really stressing you out, like, you know, multiple times in a month. Uh, you know, four five, six times, something like that, where you feel out of control when you're binging, then you know every two, three weeks, if you're having one one time where you you have a day where you eat more than you're intended to in your six week kind of recovery process that's that's normal, you know that's not a big deal
0: yeah and and uh that's that's interesting that you bring that up because um i I've heard i I forgot who he was, but it's just some- someone in in like uh, like in the natural bodybuilding community, I believe who said that at some point um, the only way to kind of get people out of this uh, dieting, very restricted or just kind of disordered behavior type of mindset is to just let them eat whatever they want, whenever they want for a while until they get that out of their system. And I I remember when I first heard that, I was like, you know, that might work for some people, but some people might not stop until they get like obese. But do you think – I remember when I first interviewed you – that I first, uh, that, that you said that when after your first bodybuilding season, um, you had these reoccurring binge episodes and then you were trying to make up for them with these low calorie days. And do you think that if you didn't try to make up for these days and you just kind of accepted the binge and then just kept eating in a surplus, then you would have been back to normal earlier on and you wouldn't have put on all that extra weight?
1: Probably, yeah. So, to, to, to just to kind of respond to that first comment, I do think there needs to be some modicum of structure, um, and just letting people eat whatever they want. Um, the, the the tough thing is that they might be eating, but it's not necessarily what they want. You know, uh, mm-hmm. it's it's not like it's every competitor after the show is going, oh, I can't wait to eat. And then some coach comes around and goes, no, 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 you need to control this a little bit. Neither do a recovery diet or reverse diet. There is an incredible amount of push and pull within. Uh, a lot of these competitors where they are, have a drive to eat and they are eating, but they don't want to be gaining weight that fast. Um, And sometimes that's, they have a realistic idea of how much weight they should be gaining and what kind of surplus they have. Sometimes they have an unrealistic one. I would say that the typical kind of reverse diet where it's, yeah, I took six months to put on eight pounds is probably unrealistic. And I shouldn't even be trying to do that in the first place. But in my case, like 2007, I put on, 50 pounds in in two months and i that's not healthy you know that's really not something that should happen and um I, i would like to think looking back that if i had um i think my issue was on the other end of the spectrum it wasn't that i was trying to reverse diet and i was just you know like screwing myself up that term didn't really exist yet i had no plan leaving uh the season and um I was fine with it for a while. I think when I got up to like you know twelve pounds over stage weight, I just looked good. You know, I sure I lost yeah. like quad cuts or something, and I didn't have my hamstring separation, but I just looked full. I looked big. I was stronger, um, and I liked eating, so it wasn't a big deal. Like, um, but it didn't go away. I just stayed uh, stayed cyclically binging, and then when I tried to address it, that's when I had um, problems. So I, I think perhaps if I had been given some type of structure but structure that put me in a a modest surplus, you know, like if I had been told, Hey, just eat, you know, 3,500 to 4,000 calories a day. That's a lot of food. Um, but I was, I mean, I was eating, if you think about it, what, what kind of calorie level was I eating to gain 50 pounds in two months? It was more than that. So, um, but the problem was, yeah, I think, I think it was some of my response to those days. Like once I'd gotten to a place where I wasn't necessarily comfortable with gaining any additional fat and I'd have one of these, you know, 5,000, 6,000 calorie days, that's when I go, Oh my God, I got to fix that. And the next day would be, you know, protein, vegetables and, and, uh, and, and not much, you know, like less than 2000 calories and then it would happen again. So I I think I just needed some guidance there and some structure really.
0: Yeah. And, and, and just to, just for me to, or for the listeners to imagine it, like once you, cause yeah, like once you've started to gain like uncontrollable amounts of weight like you know and when you went from like 40 pounds to like 50 pounds during that period how was that like was it like binge eating like five or six thousand calories like multiple multiple times a week or how did that look like
1: well it's funny you know basically i think for the first maybe three or four weeks it was just like whatever i'm just gonna I'm just going to eat because I've been dieting for so long. And then I think I got into the one nineties, as I said, I was on stage at like 178. I got into the one nineties and I was like, I, this that's pretty rapid. I, sh- I should try to slow things down. And I would have probably, it was almost every other day really of, of a day where I was having four or five meals eating till complete fullness, you know? Um, and, uh, being very, very stressed out by that. And then there was a period right around where I was like, 210, 215. And I was just like, whatever, I'm just not going to modify my my behavior. I'm going to eat when I'm hungry and I'll stop when I don't, and when I'm not. And, and I got up to 226 and I finally was like, all right, I'm ready to diet. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't really want to eat anymore. I'm not that hungry. So for me, I was a, you know, 16 pound overshoot from where I started my contest prep before I actually uh, was in a position where I, where I had some kind of modicum of control to to diet. And then I had to spend, you know, on and off periods for the next year, you know, dieting back down to start my next contest season at, uh, something like, I want to say 200 pounds. So, um, yeah, so it, it was, uh, yeah, It's possible that if I had had that attitude of whatever, just eat and don't try to modify it, that I would have ended at a lower body weight. But, uh, I don't know. It's tough to say.
0: Hindsight's yeah, you know, I guess Twenty twenty, And it was 10, it's 10 years ago now so I'm not really sure. Yeah. H- hindsight uh, 220 in this case. Okay. That w- that was bad. Exactly. Bad. <laughs> but but I guess the silver lining is that at least you did get that attitude at some point when you when you stopped. Like I guess when you had that attitude that like okay whatever I'm just going to eat until I'm not hungry. If at that point you still had the attitude is like of like okay I'm still going to like have low calorie days or whatever then maybe you would have overshot even more. So I guess it's still better than could have been. Yeah,
1: yeah certainly. Well, I, I, I realized that was not working,
0: you know, so. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: And then it was probably making it worse. I figured that out at some point. I mean, it, it, I wouldn't go back and change the uh, the experience because it's what led me to want to start 3D mustardy Journey with the guys. And, uh, and, and now Andrea, because I started to realize that there's potential harm in the sport. And in my in my experience a, a lot of potential benefits you know of, of teaching yourself what you can accomplish and a lot of potential joy and life enhancement to be taken from bodybuilding um so i wanted to try to help people deal with the the negatives and and focus on the positives and and find a way to to make it an overall net you know benefit to life so yeah it was it was a, a, a educational experience if you will
0: yeah yeah you definitely made you a better coach today so um, I guess it's a, it's an ad benefit for a lot of people, um, including you. But, uh, so, uh, n- next thing I want to touch on with you is, um, intuitive eating, as a lot of people like to call it. And I'm like, I guess I'm not really a big fan of the term. And I think neither you are because it really implies that you are literally listening to some intuitions to dictate what you're eating. So maybe we could call it auto regulatory eating or hunger. Or hunger and satiety based eating, but uh, you touched on this in the latest mass uh, edition that this is something you like to use with your clients, and you advise people to try out once they are in the off season, they're off of you know contest prep. So when we look at intuitive eating, if you had to kind of compare it to macro tracking, or maybe put together like a pros and cons list. Uh, of what are the benefits of intuitive eating and what are the downsides um what would you what, how would you say it compares to macro tracking for example
1: well i i probably wouldn't frame the discussion that way because i think intuitive eating doesn't really have a a well-defined criteria um the the video i use in mass and what i normally talk about it is flexible dieting um and a lot of discussion around flexible dieting is Confused because people have started to use if you fit your macros and flexible dieting as synonyms or the same thing, and they're not. Um, you know, the, the root of flexible dieting came from research by a group led by Westenhofer, uh, where they actually identified that the, there's two different types of restraint in people who are attempting to diet there's flexible and there's rigid restraint. And people with rigid restraint tended to see food as black and white and seeing as being on or off the diet in a dichotomous way. So they would run into more issues with kind of this binge eating restriction, binge eating restriction. And in general, they were heavier in body weight, uh, unsatisfied with their body, stressed out, basically unsuccessful and stressed out because of it and had more hangups around food in their body than people who had a a flexible restraint model where they were able to look at um, the day and the weeks more fluidly so that they could say, all right, well, you know, if I if I had a little more today, I'll eat less tomorrow. And they were probably more in tune with their hunger signals. So I, I like that verbiage better because intuitive eating to me, like, like you said, it has some of those weaknesses of interpretation. Like it's really easy to go, right, so just eat when you want to. Okay, we have an obesity epidemic that's been getting worse over years. That doesn't appear to be working. Uh, and then another critique is that within the fitness community, a lot of the people who promote intuitive eating were neurotic food trackers for years before they started promoting intuitive eating. Oh. So they, they learned to incorporate some type of balance between um, quanti- quantifying food and their hedonic drive to, to eat. And I think that's basically um, the model that I think makes sense for physique athletes is to have flexible structure. So, you know physique athletes typically thrive with structure and how rigid that structure is basically needs to be scaled to the goal. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think, I think just simply if it fits your macros is a potentially harmful oversimplification of, of, of a model of flexible dieting, uh, because it depends on what level of accuracy you have. Like when I hear someone go, yeah, I added three grams of fat or I, or, you know, I, I had a seven gram bump to my carbs this week, or uh, they they write down their macros and it's like 62 fat 367 carbs and 221 <laughs> protein because they got it from some calculator i'm thinking yeah. well like why isn't that rounded to the nearest 5 or 10 like do they think they can be that accurate do they think there's value in being that accurate and what with someone like that what do they think when they go over by a gram do they, have they blown it and i've seen just as many people treat macros as dichotomous as I have seen people treat, you know, rigid meal plants to where if they go over five grams on their carbs, that they turns into a binge, which is defeating the whole purpose. So I think um, tracking your macronutrients is a step in the right direction. It's certainly less rigid than having, I have to have, you know, broccoli steak and, and an apple at, at 6 p.m. And if the timing's wrong or the food type is wrong, like even if I have the macros the same at six thirty pm I think that is certainly more rigid uh, at least you have different uh, ability to, to you know to, to swap in other foods when you're doing it to fit your macros but really it's it's the issue is the mindset and the way you see the diet um, and having some type of but then the problem becomes okay, well, how do I just make myself have flexible restraint and you you can't um, but there is evidence showing that adopting behaviors that are classified as more flexible tend to correlate strongly uh, with weight loss, maintenance, and success long-term over one and three years is a cool study that showed that. So basically, you go, okay, well, well, what's the model that I need to teach people flexible behaviors? How would I do that? And that's essentially what those videos are in in, in our mass uh, uh, research review. I talk about what models I use to teach bodybuilders to be more flexible uh, and how I have A refeed day that could change days based on the situation uh, or implementing diet breaks um, or things like 20% borrowing where you just simply have a cap on the number of calories you can take from one day to get to the next. So it doesn't turn into this, you know, binge and restrict cycle. Um, or, you know, different tiers of tracking. So where if you do miss your, your macros substantially because of an error or just simply, you know, a little bit of a, a break in, in willpower then you can then revert to calories and go, right. Well, I totally blew my carbs. Well, that's okay. That just means I'm going to eat less fat for the day. Uh, and, and just focus on, on calories and protein, uh, or that it allows more flexibility. If you're focusing on calories and protein, you can work in small amounts of al- alcohol, depending on, on your goal and Within reason, like say, fifteen percent of total calories. So all of those ways are basically rules and guidelines that provide the structure to engage in more uh, flexible restraint behavior versus having a rigid restraint model or knowing that you're supposed to be flexible but having no idea how to actually do that.
0: Right. So um, if we like, if we were to uh, talk about something where. But like intuitive eating, would would that be, I think you mentioned that with some of your athletes or and with yourself, you are weighing in every day and you're not actively tracking your macros in the off season, for example. Is that is that correct?
1: Right. Yeah. So, so what that actually looks like is when I start to have the conversation, because fair enough, you know, when someone is trying to get on stage at, at basically minimal subcutaneous fat levels. Or, or whatever the equivalent is for their division. They're going to have to have a long, hard diet and they're going to need to be relatively meticulous with their tracking. And normally, I'm asking them to be within, you know, five to 10 grams of their macros. And some of those uh, strategies that I mentioned earlier, we can have, like, we can have roving refeeds that will take diet breaks and um, we can potentially do 20% borrowing and and going down to tiers. But in the end, most of the time is going to be spent within, you know, five grams of our, our macros and preparing your own meals and, you know, being the guy who, might just have a diet coke out with his friends, and you know, it's just a you know that 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 person at the end of their diet is going to be pretty uh, restricted. Maybe not as much as compared to traditionally, but nonetheless, um, the time to really try to ease off on the level of, of rigidity and accuracy is during the off season, where you're not going to be you know judged by seven people as as to the lines in your butt. Um, so what that looks like is that you know after we have that recovery diet period. Uh, where I'm increasing them into a, a pretty substantial surplus and cutting their, their cardio like in half, almost right out the gates after, you know, having a celebratory untracked day on Saturday and Sunday, if their show is on Saturday, um, that recovery diet period, now we're going to be focusing more on calories and protein, or if they it really depends on the athlete, if they are too nervous to go to calories and protein, I'll just give them broader targets for the macros. Um, like, you know, plus or minus 20 grams now, so long as they're within say 150, 100 calories of the target. And then once we've put on a certain amount of weight and we've gotten to an athletic off season, uh, body composition, say after four to six weeks, that's when we start basically removing as many elements of tracking as we can while still being optimal in our approach. So what that means is, you know, you've just dieted for six to eight months and we've had a one month recovery period you've established some awesome habits. You know, you know, you can probably look at a sweet potato and tell me how much it weighs within 5 to 10 grams, you know. Um, You can look at a chicken breast and you can have a pretty good idea of how many grams of protein are in it. Um, So let's put those habits to use. You know, you've been eating within a rough kind of percentage breakdown of carbs, fat, and protein this whole time. It's unlikely that all of a sudden you will forget to eat protein when you've been consuming, you know, 2.5 grams per kg for a year, you know. So how about we just weigh in, right? Just, you know, at least three days per week. But, you know, if it doesn't stress you out, we'll get a daily weigh in so we can get a nice average. And we can just use your change in body weight as a gauge of energy balance. And then we can just tell you to eat a little closer to being full or a little further from being full and do some kind of auto regulatory habit based tracking uh, to, to get the rate of weight gain we want. And every once in a while we can audit it just to make sure your protein's in the right spot and that you're not really low on carbs or really low on fat. And that's normally rare. You know, I mean, if, if someone's been following a relatively balanced contest prep approach, you know, and if you let them kind of eat in a, in a manner that is still like, you know, our goal is to hit similar targets, but don't have to track it, you know, because, you know, you are eating macros, whether or not you're actually tracking your macros, believe it or not. Um, And then we just find out what is the minimal number of nutritional variables we can track while still hitting our goals. And I'll give you my personal example is that I tend to, believe it or not, as a protein researcher, if I don't track it, my protein will end up low, say below even like 1.8 grams per kg. Um, And I tend to forget to eat fruit and vegetables. (laughs) So um, so what I do is I actively keeping track in my head that I want to have at least two servings of fruit and vegetables every day. And that I keep a running count in my head of protein. Um, and when I, when I, you know, when I coach somebody, the only difference is that I ask them to put that on a spreadsheet so that they'll track the one to three variables in addition to body weight that they may need to make sure they're doing everything optimally as an athlete.
0: Right. So, um, if you are working with uh with a guy who you know is at a healthy body fat level have been tracking for a while have been adherent to macro tracking so basically it's a structured person and you trust that it the the client is ready to move into maybe just uh hunger and satiety based nutrition and just using the scale weight to gauge energy balance how would you how do you start that person on that basically do you have for example like some sort of like, not a list of foods, but just like some suggestion in terms of food choices, because food choices are more important when you are not tracking your macros, because you are more susceptible to overeating because you're not tracking things? Or do you just kind of trust that they will use their athletic common sense uh, with this these kinds of things?
1: Well, I think it, it, it starts, if they come to me just out of the blue, and I'm working with them, and then I have to make or I want to institute that change, this wouldn't be the case. But ideally, it starts before that. And it is talking to the person before you're going to make the change about, hey, I'm thinking about at some point in the future when you're ready, maybe having you track less variables. Uh, and you know, so so think about your eating behaviors you know, and, and, and why you're doing the things you do and what our goals are and, and start to pay more attention to your hunger and satiety. Because it's often, in my opinion, not actually true that all people are more likely to overeat when they are eating uh, based on hunger once they've established good, good behaviors versus by the numbers, because when you eat by the numbers, you're teaching yourself to not listen to hunger and you're not listening to satiety, which can have consequences, you know? Um, Yeah. So basically the, the first step is I, I, I do it if they want to, because if, if everything's going great and they're not stressed and life's good and they're still having an active social life, and they can, you know, not weigh things and go to a restaurant with their wife on the weekends and, and you know, there's no issues. Hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? If they're happy. Um, but if they are interested in the idea of just having to manage less variables and have a little more freedom in their life and, you know, not pop on, you know, MyFitnessPal on their phone when they're at the restaurant real quick, um, then fine. You know, great. Let, let, let's, let's do that. And then we do it in a tapered fashion. I wouldn't just take someone from you know, meticulously tracking all three macros and weighing all their foods to just track body weight, I would probably say, Hey, let's move to calories and protein and just get within a hundred calories and see how you do. And we'd do that for a few weeks until they felt comfortable and then we would move forward. So I, I think with everything you want to do it at the pace that the person is comfortable with, um, because there's no real urgency to it. You know, um, I, I, yeah. I, I tracked my macros for five years and it wasn't really an issue. I mean, I was doing a lot of things not intentionally that, that I would have someone do now, like I wouldn't weigh or worry about it too much. And I would shift to just calories if I went out to eat. Um, but I was limiting myself. Okay. I'm only gonna eat out twice per week. You know, now I eat out as many times as I want. Cause I don't actually think that my macros aren't a pedestal. I realize that if I eat to my hunger levels and if I modulate it that way, at least when I'm in a surplus. obviously if I diet it, that wouldn't be something I'd want to do or I wouldn't be able to diet, <laughs> but, uh, I can, you know, I can gain weight at an appropriate rate or maintain it pretty much at will. And while just, you know, paying a little attention to, to you know, vegetables, protein and, and fruit. So,
0: Yeah. And and do you think, do you think that now that you are an advanced level lifter and you are eating based on your hunger and tidy signals, do you think that um, some days, for example, you go out to a restaurant and you eat a lot more because of whatever reason, and then, you are just eating based on your hunger and satiety signals, that will result in you eating a lot less the next day and it just kind of auto-regulates itself over time. And those deficit days, even in the off-season when you want to gain, are not an issue long-term because it just all kind of balances out.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. I definitely think that's the case. Um, and interestingly enough, there's there's a fair amount of research out there that that it's not – it sounds weird. But I mean, a sustained calorie deficit will typically result in some lean body mass losses. Um, but when you look at what relationships there are between, uh, you know, muscle mass gain when you're, someone's not intentionally dieting, it's not as much related to the size of the surpluses as it is making sure you get adequate protein in and have a good stimulus. You know, like if you look at a lot of the the studies that are coming out with uh, from Jose Antonio, where these guys are eating a ton of protein or less protein, and one group's gaining more weight um and but they're gaining similar amounts of muscle mass you you have to assume that the group eating a ton of protein is just more satiated and they're in kind of an intermittent surplus and small deficit and it doesn't seem to be impacting their long-term gains i mean there's even a study that's i think a year long um and then there's the study by garth i want to say 2011 um where the group that was in like a 600 calorie surplus more than than the other group that was you know kind of in a a self modulated small surplus. They both gain weight, but they gain a similar amount of lean body mass, um, kind of just intuitively trying to gain weight. So, yeah, I, I don't worry about it too much. And it also, another thing with intuitive eating is you kind of have to eat like an adult to some degree. I mean, yeah. um, the quote unquote intuitive eating that I've gotten to now did come with five years of tracking my macros. So that means I might have a night out, I might have nachos and a margarita, you know, but. I'm still pretty good at keeping my overall day from being like, I'm not going to have more than like a thousand calorie surplus any given day, you know? And then that yeah. might mean the next five days, not that I'm tracking it, are going to be in a, you know, 100, 200 calorie deficit or something like that, which is, you know, pretty minor when you think about it. So it's, it, that's yeah. a lot different than restricting myself to just protein shakes the next day, you know, and tracking that. Mm-hmm.
0: You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so um, I'm just curious, like I'm, I'm just going to throw a couple of like hypothetical real life situations at you too, because I'm curious how you you implement this with yourself or with clients. So if you let's say you have a client who, you know, you started this uh, intuitive approach with and you agreed that you're going to monitor the scale weight, that will be your gauge. And you just see that, you know, scale weight is going up way too rapidly and the client is starting to gain weight just way too quickly. Um, what do you advise them to do in that kind of situation? Do you advise them to, uh, be less full at each meal or modify their food selection a little bit? What, what would be your go-to strategy here? Yeah, you I'd probably start with some habit based
1: stuff. Like, Hey, let's, let's focus on eating each meal until you are satisfied and not full. You know, don't don't chew as quickly or, you know, like chew slower take your time with the meal, um, you know, drink a glass of water beforehand. And then, you know, so a few behavioral things like that, like eat at regular meal times, um, you know, order slightly less, uh, high calorie items when you're at restaurants, that's where it tastes the best and it's easy to overeat. Um, and then, you know, if that doesn't solve the issue, then we just take it. We just take a step back. Okay. Let's start tracking protein, you know, and let's you know, let's, 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 let's just take a step back from there. And if there's still an issue, then we go, okay, let's go back to macros and just have broad ranges. So yeah, it's going to look different from everyone. The goal isn't to get necessarily everyone to just tracking body weight. The goal is to get them to tracking as minimal number number of variables as they can while still reaching their goals and being happy. So that, that, where that ends up is going to look a little different for everybody.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that totally clears it up. And then, if if someone, I mean, I think you mentioned that you tend to accidentally undereat when you do this. If someone is, um, you know, not progressing in the gym as they want to, or you know, they they just apparently always undereat, then would you uh, again target it from a behavioral standpoint? Or, um, would you, would you advise maybe just tracking for a while to make sure that they're eating, for example, enough fat or enough, enough protein or something?
1: Yeah, same, same process. I pro- I, I'd start with asking them to eat more calorie dense foods and to, uh, you know, sneak things in, like drinking juice is a great way to sneak calories in, do some liquid calories. Uh, and, um, you know, there, there's a lot of little tricks you can't, it's easy to overeat, you know, our entire food industry is, is built around helping us do that. So you know, eat out more, <laughs> um, eat more, eat more calories that are, that taste good. Um, try to enjoy your food more, eat, eat to your cravings, you know, all the things you would tell someone not to do, who is, you know, struggling with, with weight gain, you would tell them to do, uh, you know, try to eat on the lower end of the protein intake. If you're kind of have a rough gauge of where you are in your head, because let's be honest, you've been tracking macros for years, you kind of know where you're settling at the end of the day. Um, and you know, if that doesn't result in in an appropriate rate of weight gain, then yeah, let's start tracking calories and protein, you know? And um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just step back as needed to get to the goal.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, when, uh, before I interviewed you, or before we we got to this call, I asked a couple of people in, in a few communities if they had uh, some questions to you. And we had a couple of good questions, but... Uh, basically, I could uh, categorize them into two big categories, and one of them was related to body fat percentages. And, um, you know, a lot of questions regarding like, you know, can you stay at 8 to 10% body fat? What's a good body fat percentage? All those kinds of things. And I guess uh, a more general question that could be helpful for a lot of people here is when you have a client or you are trying to determine this for yourself, how would you determine if... It would be beneficial for you to try to get a bit heavier, maybe carry a bit more body fat in the off season, or whether you you're an Alberto and it's appropriate for you to stay, you know, single digit body fat in the off season. How would you how would you determine that?
1: Well, the, the cool thing is is that your your brain is heavily linked in body body weight regulation. You know, if you like the the biggest sensor for leptin in the brain. You know, so. I go completely behaviorally, you know, um, if you are still food focused, you're too lean. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's that simple. Assuming everything else has kind of been sorted, like it's not just immediately after competition where you're going to potentially be food focused for an extended period, maybe three to four months before you feel normal, almost regardless of your rate of weight gain, um, almost regardless. But so, yeah, most of the time it's, it's not, you know, a lot of people go, oh, can I, I've heard it's between eight to 12%. I'm going to try eight. And they may be someone who's kind of behavioral settling point and where they're not food focused to 16% and they're going to be struggling for a long time until they accept that. So I think it's simply a matter of, of basically seeing at what point are you not food focused? What point can you not worry about it? Where whatever behaviors you've gotten from your time in fitness are enough to sustain your weight and you're not constantly thinking about eating. Um, because if you are, that's an issue. It shouldn't be ignored or just seen as just a character trait. You know, I've talked to some people who are like, no, nah, man, I'm always hungry. that's just the way I am. And I go, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe. It's possible. I'm not, I'm not going to completely discount that. But a lot of times it's because of people don't know what's the chicken and what's the egg. You know, they they feel like they have to constantly restrict themselves because they're always food focused. And if they don't, they'll get obese. But maybe it's actually constant, constantly restricting themselves. That is the reason they're always food focused and they've never really given them a chance to give them given themselves a chance to just walk around a little bit heavier. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it's unlikely that you're just that person who will just eat into oblivion, even though you regularly train, have a good idea of calories, have a high protein intake, eat healthy, etc. Um, there are the people are out there who will need that, but it's, it's certainly not normal.
0: Yeah. And, and, and one thing, uh, if I may uh, drop here and, and it's, it's merely an observation and I, I guess I'm just, I I just want to let, I just want to drop it here because I find it very interesting is that I, f- I find it your, I mean, it's funny, like your generation of bodybuilders, I mean, you're only slightly older than I am. um, But like, you know, you, Alberto, Lane, and then, you know, guys before you like Jeff Alberts. What I see is that you've all had these periods earlier on when you just had these long off season where you were kind of heavier, maybe admittedly heavier than you should have been, um, and you were carrying more fat than probably was um, was needed, but you just didn't care about it that much, and um, and that's when you made some of your best gains. And like my generation, even though I'm only slightly slightly younger than you are, but you know, we grew up on the social media, you know, intermittent fasting, stay shredded all year long. And we are the ones who end up spinning our wheels for years on end and not making any real progress. So, I, I don't know. Do you? Does that resonate with you, what I'm just saying? I think yes,
1: to to a certain degree. Um, I think people who are, you know, like the stereotypical thing back when I was early coming up, we're talking when I first started lifting weights in 2004. Was that there's the guys who go on the dreamer bulk and get too fat, think it's all muscle, and then there's the guys who never make any gains because they always want to have abs. Um, I think it was never, it wasn't as socially acceptable to be in the latter camp um, before when like in like in the mid two thousands, early two thousands, there wasn't like a strong outlet for that. Um, and then I remember when like you know Martin Birkin and Lean Gains and and other guys who kind of had these popularized approaches to, you know, maintaining a low body fat percentage with less effort. Like once they got credibility, and, and this isn't a knock against them, I think they've done some good work. It's just often taken too far by the the followers rather than the actual person. Um, I think once that became socially acceptable, and there's an outlet, instead of all these, you know, big, broided out bodybuilders telling you, Quippy and poster just you know eat more food, don't have abs. You know that was basically. I mean that was that's that was like basically half of the T Nation articles and Elite FTS articles that I grew up on. You know, um, yeah. were I remember an article from on on uh, T Nation from Dave Tate saying having trouble gaining weight, we'll get a large pizza and dump olive oil all over it and just eat it all. <laughs> so like, um, which is insane, you know, when you think about it. But um, if anything, there was this this culture in in the the mainstream online bodybuilding community of if you're not gaining weight, you're not making gains. And if you can't gain weight, suck it up and eat more food, you know, which was the prevailing thought. And I will say that now with some of the leadership and quote unquote fitspiration and the constant uh, eye of of social media, always following you and everyone posting, you know, filtered pictures of them in their best lighting and posed shots that there is now a, uh, a huge culture around always being aesthetic. You know, And I think the downside to that is that it, it asks a lot of people to, to try to do that who don't have the experience uh, or the foundation or the, the, the genetics or psychology to do that. And, uh, yeah, they, I think there's more, more wheel spinning from that. However, I mean, like Alberto and myself, like Alberto got up to 250 pounds and he competes at 165. So you know, he's had to spend a couple years cutting to get back down to, you know, a reasonable body fat percentage. So there's, there's certainly extremists on either end. Neither one's good, um, but uh, but certainly, I, I think the one thing you can be sure of is that if you're eating everything in sight, you're probably not holding back, you know, your lean body mass gains. It may become a big pain in the ass if you ever wanna actually diet down and get on stage and you have to lose half your, your body weight. But, um, you know, that that's it just depends on which kind of problem you wanna have.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, It's, um, I I guess everybody has their own biases. It's just me like looking back at, you know, my past couple of years, I, if I could advise my past self, I would have probably said that dirty bulking is not good, but it probably is still better than just being obsessed all the time on being super lean because dirty bulking, at least you, yeah, as you said, you're not holding back on, on the, I would agree.
1: And, And you're less likely to develop some, some not so healthy relationships with food in your body. Um, you might yeah. be just not happy yeah. the way you look in the mirror, uh, and and you know have to diet at some point. But I, I would agree if that's that's the lesser of two evils, you
0: know. Yeah, exactly. And and just to give people some perspective, like from all the bodybuilders that you're working with, like what would be you know some of the higher body fat percentages that you that guys maintain in the off season uh, and are still productive, and and you consider that as, as
1: yeah. And, and you know the funny thing is. Um, Body fat percentage, like if you measure it on DEXA, on average, it tends to be higher than other methods, you know, and and that can freak people out. But like if what we, you know, the the internet consensus of what different body fat percentages are based on visual assessment, I'll use that standard that we all kind of have an idea of where like an ab cage is probably 15% and, you know, full-blown abs is 10%, that kind of thing. This is for guys, of course. For women, you kind of have to add like basically, you know, another another 5% to whatever I say. I have... I've I've seen a fair amount of my clients at different times be in the, in the range of 16 to 20% and that'd be not an issue. You know, Mm -hmm. um, it does mean that we might have to do a mini cut sometime like, Oh, you want a diet for a show in six months. All right, let's do one month mini cut. Now we'll go three months, do another one month mini cut, get you down to like, say 15% and then, you know, bring food back up and then start our diet six months out. And that's not a big deal. You know, uh, it just, it just means you have to plan a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's it's not like I keep all my my guys at eight to twelve percent and all my gals at you know sixteen to twenty percent body fat all year round or uh, when they're not competing. It's it's much more based on what they're comfortable with and when they're not food focused and uh, wherever that is. And for some people, that is on the higher end of what we would consider a healthy body fat percentage. It's still normal. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and um, I mean uh, just to. Just, just to give people some perspective on this, like, uh, like I just had this discussion with someone not that long ago that like it used to be the traditional like stay somewhere between like ten to fifteen percent in the off season, and with the rise of social media, this kind of changed over time to like eight to ten. And if you're over ten, then you're kind of getting fucked.
1: No, I, I totally agree, and um, yeah, people have these warped ideas of, of what body fat percentages mean or look like. Yeah, I, I always, I, I never have people. My my clients, they if they want to go get a DEXA or, or get dunked or or get pinched, that's fine. But I never ask them to do that because it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is is where they're comfortable with what they look like, um, whether that's a realistic, healthy body image to have. Because uh, sometimes, often more, more often than not, they what they desire is is not a realistic goal to to maintain. Um, and then you know, so a lot of the work is on being able to accept that. Walking around at fifteen percent is fine, <laughs> and then yeah. uh, just focusing on okay. So, are you constantly thinking about food? Are you struggling to hit your macros or not go over them? You know, if we if we didn't have some system of tracking, would you gain ten pounds? Well, it's too lean, and you know, and and there's there's a level of denial that comes with that, but you can only be in denial of that so long. I mean. I I can't tell you how many competitors I've seen for like three, four years would just try to maintain too lean and eventually just go, it's not fucking worth it. I don't care. You know, and they they just let themselves get a little heavier in the off season. And that's, I think that's a good thing. That's what should happen. Um, Ideally, it won't take that long, but, uh, but it's hard to, it's hard to get over that when you've got all the pressure to, or the perceived
0: pressure to, to maintain leaner than you should be. Yeah, I guess, I guess, uh, the 18% body fat that you can maintain is better than the 12% body fat that you can't, to put it very, (laughs) very pedantically. But so, um, like one thing that I want to ask you, and, and I, I decided actually not to ask this because I wanted to keep it at a consistent theme. But since we're on the topic, you mentioned mini cuts. And one thing that I was thinking about a lot is like usually the, recommended ratios of gaining to cutting for bodybuilders is like a 4 to 1, 3 to 1, 4 to 1 ratio. And uh so what do you think if someone was to do this in like a shorter term period of like 3 to 4 weeks of gaining and like one or two weeks of cutting and like repeating that. Do you think that would work or what would you uh, think?
1: I prefer not to have someone dieting that frequently. Um I, i'm sure it could work but I, I smile because i think it's interesting that that four to one ratio is still out there because i'm pretty sure and i don't want to just take credit for something that i may have just repeated that i started saying that on like the bodybuilding.com forums in like 2008 or something like that um huh. it's become i love how that's become standard practice it's a little minor piece of pride but yeah the reason why i decided to make some ratio is that i just saw too many people going oh i'm doing another mini cut and i'm like is it really a mini cut if you spent six months out of the year, quote unquote, mini cutting, like that's just (laughs) taking a break from a year long diet every other month, you know, come on, dude. So, um, so yeah, I I tried to just get it across people like, sure, you don't want to start your next contest prep diet, 40 pounds over. So you need to have some method of of mitigating fat gain, but you are a bodybuilder. So that means you probably want to be in a surplus the majority of the time. So how about, how about 80%, you know, four to one sounds good. Um, yeah. and I, yeah, that, that can be manipulated. Someone can, can literally do one month on and one week diet if they want, or they could do four months, one month, you know? Um, so I, I don't use the term mini cut too much because sometimes I'll have someone in a gaining phase for eight months and they'll diet for two months. I, I think two months is probably longer than I would call something a, a mini cut, but it's, it, it would be appropriate in the case for how long I had them in a surplus, you know?
0: Oh man! Anytime I'm I'm talking to someone like you about these these topics, it always hits me that like it just doesn't have to be so freaking complicated. Like a a lot of people make it out to be. I don't know. It's just it's just interesting. Uh, But like, yeah. And my my last question that I want to ask you, and this was uh, came from another couple of people like similar themed questions, but it was about maintenance phases and. There were a couple of questions on like how to prevent binges uh if someone is moving from like a very strict or ambitious goal that they had and now they achieve the goal and they want to move to a maintenance phase um and i guess i just find this question interesting because in that uh, second mass edition that i saw you touched on this that bodybuilders typically don't have issues cutting or bulking they have more issues with maintaining so First of all, do you even think that maintenance phases are really necessary for bodybuilding or should it always be some sort of goal-oriented behavior? And why do you think that maintenance is just so freaking hard for people?
1: Well, there's a couple questions there. I'll start with, um, do I think bodybuilders should have maintenance phases? Um, Probably not philosophically, but what a gaining phase will look like for an advanced bodybuilder might as well be maintenance because of the rate of weight gain that that, that you can use is, I mean, I might have someone gain a pound a month as an advanced bodybuilder, but I'm fully mm-hmm. expecting 80% of that to be body fat, you know, uh, at, mm-hmm. at a high level. So that means, you know, like shit, they're going to gain, you know, three, four pounds of muscle in a year, but you know, 12 pounds of body weight. So that means that, you know, we're, we're going to have to periodically diet every once in a while. And, you know, you, you could slow that down even more and just gain, half a pound a month, but then that basically looks like maintenance, doesn't it? So, yeah. so I think that's my answer for, for bodybuilders. And I think the reason why bodybuilders don't do well with that is because they're so goal, goal oriented in general, you know, um, and they brought up in a culture of cut or bulk. Uh, and also after if with enough time in the sport where you are teaching yourself to either overeat or undereat, just living life and eating normally, and sustaining a, a rough cal- calorie maintenance is, uh, is harder to do. Um, that's not to say you can't make gains at maintenance. Um, you know, I think there's, there is that misconception that you have to be in a calorie surplus to put on muscle mass. But, uh, you, you know, you will recomp, quote unquote, from, from being at maintenance at a slower pace. Uh, and then eventually you'll get hungry and put yourself into a surplus if you're intuitively eating, you know, as your body fat over the course of a year goes from 12 to t- 12% to 10%. And then all of a sudden you find yourself hungry again, and then you'll get back at the 12%, but at a heavier weight, that's something you'll hear a lot of advanced natural bodybuilders talk about They'll, they'll because they're not looking to gain a pound a week. You know, they're, they'll say something like, man, this is the best I've made 180 pounds look, you yeah. know, and they're, and they're thinking back to, to 2012 or something like that. Um and that is essentially for what it looks like, it might as well be maintenance, but it is still someone trying to make progress and eating for recovery and, you know, not worrying about if they're in a small surplus on some days and, and letting it just slowly accumulate over time. So I, I think that's what maintenance looks like for a bodybuilder. And that is difficult because for the first couple of years, you're brought up bulking and cutting and, um, you know, it it is the mark of an advanced bodybuilder if they're someone who's able to um, have a more normal relationship with food because it means they they found normalcy within the sport, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then and then on the uh like on the question of why is like behaviorally maintenance so hard for bodybuilders? Do you think it is because of that because they've been brought up on the bulking and cutting mentality? I think that's
1: I think that's part of it. I also think that it's um it's a lack of structure. At for at least it feels like it. Like if you don't have a target rate of weight gain or weight loss, then how do you quantify if you're doing it right? You know, so I think that's, uh, and you can get around that, you know, you can, you can set a target rate of weight gain for like a month or two months. It's, It's rare that you actually have someone who does not want to gain any weight at all. I think that's actually much more common in general fitness where you might have someone who's obese who gets to healthy weight and they go, right, now we need to institute behaviors to prevent you from getting obese again. Um, yeah. but, um, but for a bodybuilder they're even when they're at a point where they, they are so close to their genetic ceiling that, that, you know, any weight gain they have is going to be like 99% fat. That's not the mentality they're going to have. They wouldn't have got to their genetic ceiling if they had that mentality. You know, they're always seeking to push themselves a little harder and a little further. Um, so I, it, you know, like I, I know like 45 year old bodybuilders who are they, they're not going to be in maintenance. I'm not going to be in maintenance. You know, like I'm not here to maintain. I'm here to improve, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So it's, I think it's, it's antithetical to the the spirit of bodybuilding. So I think that that also causes them problems.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and if I may just add one thing, I, I guess that's why a lot of bodybuilders take up powerlifting. And I just talked about this with Andrea Valdez uh, not that long ago that like, even if like, if you don't powerlift, lift you know, when you are done cutting or, or like a weight loss period, just think about taking up a hobby that you had some time ago. Maybe it's, you know, playing music with a band or something. Just, you know, you have to kind of get your mind off of just focusing just on your physique because the, the progress you will make is just too slow to be hyper focused on it Uh all the time
1: yeah yeah that, and, that, and that's why powerlifting is such a natural fit for many bodybuilders is because it gives them an objective measurement of something to improve on and focus on that meets that drive um and you can at least with powerlifting it's not like playing in a band you can convince yourself that me getting stronger is, is potentially meaning that i'm making some muscular adaptations so um not that i discouraging people from bands but i just just kind of explaining <laughs> why some bodybuilders end up doing powerlifting in the off season is because it does fill that void and it fills it in probably a pretty useful way in, in most cases, unless they, you know, really take it too far and just, you know, hurt themselves or something like that. But anyway, um, yeah, it, it is very much about finding a way to manage the reality that as you advance, the rate of weight gain is going to be slower and being okay with that. I think that, that was a tough one. I think that's a tough one for most people. That's, that's what kind of leads a lot of intermediates to program hopping because they're looking for something that will provide them the same rate of gain that that initial program they were on gave them. Um, and that's why it leads them a lot of them to finding that every time they try to gain weight, they just get fat because they're looking for some diet approach or some combination of macros or, or the, the perfect quote unquote diet for them that will yield the same rate of muscle gain that they had as a, a novice. And that it is a little bit of a grieving process to just accept that that's over with. That's not going to happen. You know, you gain the first 80% of your muscle mass in the first one to two years of training, and you're going to spend the next 20, 30 years gaining that last 20%. And exactly. that's, that, that's definitely, it's a shift in, in mindset.
0: Awesome. Wonderful. Well, uh, Eric, I asked you all my questions. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for for doing this and uh, really lots of cool knowledge as usual. So my last question is, is there any resources, uh, just places you want people to check out and uh, want me to direct them to?
1: For sure. Yeah. I mean, on the topic of of, of flexible dieting and all this stuff, we have a lot of uh, useful video and uh, written blog um, perspectives on this at 3dmusclejourney.com which also links to our, our YouTube channel. And then I've written a fair amount about, about behavior and lifestyle in the Muscle and Strength Pyramids, which you can check out at Muscle And uh, yeah, the first issue of Mass, which is free, which you can get at strongerbyscience.com slash mass, has the part one uh, video series that you referenced where I talk about flexible dieting. And then in our first subscriber issue, I do part two. So if you're interested in any of those resources, if you want to nerd it out with Mass or you just want to read more uh, kind of general articles, check out through mustering.com.
0: Awesome. Cool. Issue. That was the word I was looking for. It was it an edition, and it sounded really silly as I was saying it, but issue. So, all right. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much. And yeah, it was, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor. Alright guys, Abel here again. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe on YouTube if you watched it there. I come out with new content every week there, whether it's in the form of a podcast episode like this, which I actually aim to do one of every week, or some shorter informational video. Also, if you could just leave a comment and suggest some people that you'd like me to interview or just topics you'd like me to cover, uh, it would be very helpful to know how I can better serve you. And if you listen to it in podcast format, if you could leave a rating on iTunes, it would greatly help out the show, and I would be more than grateful for it. So thanks, guys, for hanging out up until now. Thanks for being here, and see you all next week.